0: Hello and welcome back to the Sleep Like a Baby podcast. I'm your host Hannah and I am a holistic infant sleep consultant and I'm also a mum and I live and work here in South East London. So if you're new here, yes this is a podcast where we talk a lot about sleep in the first three years of a child's life but also um, we cover everything else that impacts nighttime parenting and naps and all of it really you know um, I want to look at the psychology behind infant development and what's going on for our children and also equally importantly what is going on for us as parents because sleep is one of the areas that lots of us parents naturally become a little bit obsessed with (laughs) although not everyone but you know most of us spend a lot of our waking hours (laughs) talking about or thinking about how our kids are sleeping or rather how they're not and we live at a strange time I think right now post um corona obviously it's still happening uh, we are still very much in a global pandemic but I definitely think that you know we're at a place now where the world has been in some state of lockdown for two years and a lot of the parenting conversations that we normally have have moved online and out of that has come a lot more, at least I think, a lot more focus on fixing baby sleep and I think a lot of parents feeling like it's just them that has a baby or toddler who wakes in the night or has certain challenges around falling asleep or uh, needs a lot more closeness from their parents and I think there is a a popular online narrative or a cultural narrative as well that is in our films and tv and kind of general cultural um, depictions of parenthood which is that babies and toddlers should be independent from an early age and that you can just fix your baby's biology um, with training, with the right routine, by listening to the so-called experts and that if your baby isn't doing that then it's a failure on your part and it's a reflection of your parenting ability. So I'm here to say and the work I do on this podcast and through my Instagram account, which is at little nest Sleep, uh, is to say that's bollocks. You know, actually waking, needing our parents at night, really normal. It's what babies have been doing for hundreds of thousands of years. It's not a reflection of how good a parent you are if your child needs you. That's just a natural instinct. And actually, we need to change something here because there are too many mothers and fathers feeling like they're getting it wrong just because they have a normal baby. Now don't get me wrong, there are lots of reasons why a child might be particularly wakeful at night or having certain challenges around sleep and obviously I'm a sleep consultant so I spend every day helping families to get more rest and so there are lots of things that I cover on this podcast and through my Instagram account that looks at what some of those kind of red flags might be or what the other reasons are what you know when are things not necessarily normal Um, and and that's the conversation we're having here so it's really I've wanting to talk about um Attachment for a good while now because it's something that gets talked about a lot. You know, attachment parenting, or is your child insecure? Or oh, is your child too attached? Are you spoiling them? Are you creating them to be needy? Have you made a um, be it? Have you made them clingy? Have you made a rod for your own back? Um, will you damage attachment if you sleep train? If you don't sleep train, there's a lot of attachment talk, but actually what is attachment theory um and so it's a huge topic as I cover with today's guest we do touch on the fact that we could do several series on attachment and and the theory behind it and obviously that's not going to happen today so this is quite a kind of a whistle stop tour through um what what people like me mean when we talk about attachment theory and um, what we cover is whether sleep training impacts attachment, um, whether um, parents are actually making their children needier. So if you always respond to your baby, pick them up when they're crying, actively soothe them, feed responsively. all of these things, are those behaviours creating a dependence? That's what I wanted to really focus on today, as well as a bit of the history behind how um, attachment theory developed and where we are now with our understanding about how children's attachment systems work. Now, on my Instagram account this week, I was asking people for their questions about attachment. And a lot of a lot of people said, that these were the areas they were particularly interested about or worried about and that they have people in their lives who have been warning them against making a child who is too attached. I think that is something I come up, uh, come up against a lot. Also as a sleep consultant, parental preference around sleep is possibly the most common challenge that I hear from families I work with. It's really hard being the primary attachment figure, the preferred parent, particularly when it comes to settling your child, that's really hard. Um, and it's something that Lucy um, and I spoke on um, on our episode we did a few weeks ago. But equally, it's very difficult when you're not the preferred parent and your child is rejecting you and they you you aren't able to settle them even though you want to. So both both situations are are difficult in different ways. And it can cause a lot of conflict in families, I think, a lot of resentment. Um, Sometimes one parent can feel like, well, if you hadn't perhaps breastfed or perhaps if you hadn't always been so responsive to our child, they would be happy to go to anyone, you've created this this situation. So I think it's really important that we start to have more conversations in the parenting world about, about that fear that a lot of us have. Something else that came up though on this Instagram Q&A that I did was about childcare and how that can um, impact attachment and a a worry that uh, if you're going back to work and your child is then going to be left with other caregivers, is that going to compromise their secure attachment, the bond that you've built up, etc. And I think that is a conversation that... I'd really like to have on another episode actually and go into in more detail. We we do touch on childcare in today's um, episode, but it's such a big thing. Uh, so I'm going to th- have a think about how we can cover that specifically in more detail because I think that's something that I don't want to just rush through. However, I will say that, um, you know, it's very normal to worry about that. Um, it's a huge transition in your life if you've gone from, being the full-time primary caregiver day-to-day looking after an infant to then going into a workplace and your child is is with someone else that's just a very big transition and I think we have to allow ourselves to feel it and go through it and not beat ourselves up for worrying or you know sometimes people can be quite dismissive of your feelings around returning to work and I, I certainly have experienced people say to me like Oh, it's fine. Loads of kids are in nursery. What's the big deal? And of course, that is true. Lots of children are in nursery. Um, But if something feels like a big deal to you, it is a big deal. And it's like I say, it's a big transition. So, um, you know, be gentle with yourself about attachment and your kind of feelings about your child. It's it's okay to feel it all. Um, But I hope what you can take away from this episode is that, It actually isn't your fault if your child is very attached to you, if you have, well I don't like the word clingy, I think um, the word cuddly (laughs) is a better, um, more appropriate word because it has fewer negative connotations but if you have a really cuddly child that's not because you've created them that way, that's because that's who they are Um, and that's something else that we go into today. So without further ado, this is my interview with Charlotte. She is a qualified holistic sleep coach as well as uh, a psychologist so she has two hats that she wears and of course her third being that she's also a mum and uh, Charlotte has uh, both a master's and um, well a bachelor's and a master's in psychology Um, so I thought who better (laughs) to talk to about attachment and sort of an, an overview from the point of view of a parent and also a psychologist and also a sleep consultant um, so here it is without further ado um, this is all about attachment theory the sleep like a baby podcast is supported by the octopus club the online marketplace where you can buy sell and give away baby and kid stuff without any hassle If your home is piling up with toys, clothes and bits of kit that your little one no longer uses, The Octopus Club offers an easy, environmentally friendly way of selling or donating things to other families. And if you're on the hunt for high quality second hand goods, this is the place for you. Honestly, the stuff on there is gorgeous. Check them out on Instagram or go straight to their website, theoctopusclub.com to sign up today.
1: Charlotte, hi, hello, how are you? Hi, Hannah. I'm I am good, thank you. How are you?
0: Yeah, I'm not bad. I'm not bad. Thank you for doing the stay, and I know you've got a bit of a cold, so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. Now, hopefully my
1: kind of nasally voice isn't too uh, irritating to, li- to listen to um, that's, <laughs> what, that's my only bugbear it's it's not kind of from my behalf it's <laughs>
0: it's the listeners <laughs> look if I think you sound nasally I'll just I'll delete the episode I'll, I'll <laughs> <laughs> the, whole thing. the whole thing will go oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well um yeah I suppose for people that haven't come across you before could you tell us a little bit about who you are and, and what you do
1: yeah so I um run the Holistic Sleep Mama which is a um I'm a sleep coach um I like to think of myself as being sort of a, a family sleep coach as well as just looking at um little ones and how we know how much little ones sleep impacts on the whole family um so I've been doing that for uh about a year and a bit um and I also do that alongside my sort of other job my my main job which is an assistant psychologist so I work for um a local authority's educational psychology service um so that's with slightly older children it's more sort of school-aged some early years but mainly sort of school-aged stuff so I'm kind of doing a little bit of both really um (laughs) trying to spin a lot of plates
0: oh my goodness Um, and you've got a toddler
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes and I've got a toddler um who probably takes up more than both of those roles put together yeah
0: um
1: that, yeah. yeah but 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 that's me really it's yeah I it's a lot of different different elements different types of experiences so um I'm you know really really honored that you have you've got me on um to have a chat with you
0: Hannah as well oh no thank you so So do you work with children, I don't know if you can say this much, but do you work with children in care then or through schools who've been referred for sort of behavioral challenges?
1: Yeah, so it's more um, referrals that have come in from school. Yeah. Not so much children in care. Um, There's kind of a separate team that work with children in care just due to the complexities, really. Mm. Um, So when children are finding it difficult at school for whatever reason uh, and schools are at a bit of a loss as to how to help um, and they're not looking for an assessment or... um, a sort of report or anything like that then they tend to tend to come to me for sort of more sort of intervention based work.
0: Got it oh it must be fascinating the work that you do I'm so interested and in... had you always wanted to be a psychologist? Do you know what it's funny because
1: I distinctly remember going to a uh, university open day when I was in sixth form dead set that I was going to do English, um, and. I remember thinking to myself "Mm, but but I can I could do English really without kind of doing a degree we're always doing English and literature and and stuff like that that was more of an interest um and I it was like a weird sort of light bulb that I thought actually I'm going to do psychology instead um yeah and kind of just just went from there really so I mean I've always always been fascinated with how people think mm. and um what drives people's behavior and how I'm different to the next person and they're different to whoever um and often I think i'm I'm so interested that my my mind just goes faster than it can keep up with really in terms of trying to to figure things out mm. um but absolutely, it's 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 an honor really to work in such a fascinating area
0: um yeah and so was it then when you had your daughter that the sleep stuff started to interest you even more
1: yeah so I've always been really interested in kind of the the psychology behind sleep so everything that goes on with that um and then obviously my daughter was born and her sleep was atrocious (laughs) um and all the while I was thinking, this can't be right. It can't be normal because there was so much out there that said, right, she's so-and-so months now. She should be doing this. You should be aiming for this. She should be napping every however long. Um, and she just didn't fit any of those boxes at all. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought, sure, you know, but she was fine. You know, she was she was thriving. She was um, happy. Um, and I thought, well, it's it's not impacting on on you. Um, so it must be okay um but yeah so i I was just so interested in finding out more, and i think in in the role I'm doing now with with being a sleep coaches i'm I kind of am trying to be that person that I wish I had, you know to to say actually this is really normal it's it's hard, it's really hard um but you know it's it it isn't forever. Um, you're not doing anything wrong and you you don't have to do things that don't feel right mm-hmm. um so it was, she's definitely been the driver um behind uh, the sleep work definitely
0: brilliant and um so yeah so it must be really interesting so you're yeah because you're you're a mother you're a psychologist you're a sleep mm-hmm. coach you've got all you've got these like three hats on and that's why i I've been wanting to do an episode about attachment for a while, but obviously that's a pretty ambitious uh, goal because really we could do like several series about attachment and obviously people spend their entire careers studying (laughs) (laughs) uh, attachment. Um, So, it's, I've given you quite a big task here to just sum up, you know, the last seventy years of research into child development. <laughs> just go. <Yeah>. No, <laughs> who better than a psychologist and a sleep coach and a mum of a a spirited toddler? So yeah, <laughs> you seem like the best fit. Oh, thank you. i
1: have st- certainly got a lot of imposter syndrome going on. Like like you say, it's 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 just the biggest topic isn't it you know it's Mm. it's one of those that is quite often misunderstood it's one that people quite often panic about Mm -hmm. um I think it's a source for a lot of parents anxiety around whether they're doing the right thing um you know and, and there's confusion as to kind of their child's normal behavior and sort of interpreting it in terms of attachment difficulty sometimes as well
0: yes Um, that's such a good point we should come on I want to come back to that but Mm. shall we start off by saying the difference between like attachment parenting and what we're talking about which is attachment theory
1: yeah so attachment theory we'll we'll, we'll talk about um, but certainly I think there is a big difference where you know you don't have to be doing what's considered attachment parenting in order to help your child have a secure attachment so as far as I'm aware in terms of attachment parenting it's things like um breastfeeding bed sharing um you know all of these things that actually for some parents aren't aren't feasible aren't Mm -hmm. you know they're not able to do but that doesn't mean that that's the only way to get you know, to kind of optimize an, an attachment. Um, it's absolutely not the case. So I think certainly there are elements in that that are talking about proximity and keeping babies close, um, being responsive, such as with with breastfeeding and how that's much more about responsive feeding than sort of um, timed intervals and things like that. And obviously with bed sharing where you, you are keeping them close all the time, sling wearing, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I can see where the confusion is
0: mm, yeah. um, but yes because it's the seven B's isn't it? it's um birth bonding, breastfeeding, baby wearing, bed sharing, uh, oh beware of baby trainers, belief in the <laughs> language value yeah. of your baby's cry and balance. so this yes. so you know there's a lot of good stuff in there, but as you've said, Breastfeeding isn't going to happen for everyone. Yeah. Bed sharing isn't appropriate for everyone. Yeah. Um, birth bonding is lovely, but not everyone gets that experience. You know, so I think there can be a lot of pressure sometimes when people hear attachment the- uh, attachment parenting, thinking, "Well, oh, I I don't do those things, so is my child not going to be securely attached?"
1: Yeah, absolutely, and you know, attachment is ongoing you know mm. um even into adulthood we we can form different attachments with with other adults um you know kind of going by what our attachment was like as a child but but you're right you certainly don't need to be doing all those things um and what i think we'll talk a bit as well i know we wanted to talk about good enough parenting and actually yeah. we can do to be good enough um and to kind of consistently show up for our children, we don't we certainly don't have to be getting it right a hundred percent of the time. Um, and in fact that that can be, you know, more of a detriment than anything. Um, so we can we can that would certainly be a good discussion as well, I think.
0: Yeah. So, okay, so attachment theory is go. This is really putting you <laughs> to the test now, <laughs> no, 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 no. Right.
1: <laughs> So I think whenever we're talking about attachment, we, we have to mention uh, a man called John Bowlby. So he was a psychoanalyst, and he kind of has this evolutionary theory that suggests that babies are born in this world, kind of pre-programmed, to form attachment with others because that's essentially how they survive. So if you think about it, um, our attachment is kind of um, one of the most important things when we think about from a biological and a psychological function as well, um, which I will talk about. And I w- I just wanted to touch also on, um, John Bowlby was kind of influenced by someone called Conrad Lorenz, and you you might have heard of some of his um, research. It's really interesting. So he did a lot of work on um, imprinting. Mm. So he found that there are some species of animals. I think he did some of his research on ducks um, or geese that form attachment to basically the first large moving thing that they meet. So from this, it's kind of been suggested that actually attachment. Is it innate? Are we very much genetically programmed? You know, we are very much social being beings. Our brains are, you know, relational organs. They need the social input, they need others. Um, and essentially we need, we need others in order to survive. And certainly if we're thinking about John Bowlby and the evolutionary theory, you know, it's thought that those babies who did stay close to their mothers would have been the ones that survived long enough to have children of their own, which is really interesting, isn't it? Because had they been left, had they not been close at all times, um, I suppose a big question is would, would we be where we are now?
0: I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Um, We, we give birth to such undeveloped babies, don't we? Compared to the rest of the animal kingdom, our brains are so undeveloped at birth. We, we are so immobile. We're so needy. Yeah. Um, you know, it. We have. To, I always think we have to have someone that's going to love us so hard to put up with us. Otherwise, yeah, I just don't think we would have got very far. No, <laughs> Babies no. are a lot of work. You need to yeah. really feel that love.
1: <laughs> yeah, they are. And I mean, certainly it's a two-way street. I mean, I think there is a lot out there that suggests that we don't actually form an attachment to our mm. child, if that makes mm. sense. We very mm. much bond with our child, um, yeah. but it's not us that's seeking security with our child. It's the other way around. Yeah. So um bulby kind of thinks that you know babies have these attachment behaviors so i talked about um proximity and how they're very much proximity seeking um so anything that's kind of under threat for a baby such as a separation from their caregiver you know them feeling insecure or unsafe or fearful they're going to signal they're going to display behaviors um crying um when they start smiling to engage um, their caregiver, crawling towards them, all of those kind of things, um, he calls them social releases. Um, and what they're doing is trying to just engage the attachment figure to get them to respond. So babies kind of are using their own sort of instinctive behaviour to try and um Sort of signal their caregiver to then get that sort of um, the attunement and that and that two way communication going. Does that make sense?
0: It does. It's yeah. It's fascinating, isn't it? So, okay. So Bowlby Pion, like kind of created the, the attachment theory, right? Yeah. Um. And so, where did it go f- from there?
1: So, there's also some research that talks about how attachment might kind of manifest in four different stages. So this was, I believe, Schaefer and Emerson, um, and they talked about something called the asocial stage, or kind of the pre-attachment, which is when they're really, really little, and how they don't actually tend to, you know, discriminate between caregivers if that makes sense, but mm-hmm. demonstrate a preference for humans over, you know, another species, for example.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. So they're kind of that that goes with the argument, doesn't it, that they are hardwired to kind of um, attach as soon as they're born to a human. Um, and then they move on to something called indiscriminate attachment. So babies start to be able to tell people apart. So then they start to develop that stronger attachment of those that are familiar to them. Um, and then what we typically see, what, what we refer to as the separation anxiety. So this is where, like, you know, between that sort of seven, nine months, um, they have more of a specific attachment to a certain caregiver so this is what we tend to see isn't it with that separation anxiety where there's a preference for one caregiver there are behaviors that are displayed that um you know show distress when this caregiver leaves um or when they're kind of passed as somebody else um for whatever reason and they and they show their kind of um uncomfort and um and their sort of distress signals there and I was had a conversation in a in a consultation with a parent the other day about separation anxiety and how it's nothing that anybody has done or caused. You know that it's actually um, developmentally appropriate and it's and it's part of their learning, um, and we can see how it fits in with with attachment. And then after that is when their babies are. This I mean this is all with the kind of assumption that they have secure attachments. Um, that they're then able to kind of uh, show more of an increase in their interest in sort of friends or grandparents or anybody else that's familiar to them. So I think that's quite interesting because it's kind of showing how attachment possibly develops as babies um, get older, I suppose. Um, But also there's something about, there's a concept where some people believe that there's a relationship that's more important than the rest. So for example, this this would be the main caregiver. Um, and that's why it's important that infants can form a secure attachment with this main caregiver, because then they're able to associate um, and, and kind of trust adults if you like, and then they can kind of relay it to other adults and more familiar adults. Um, something called the internal working model which I'll save because I think it will probably crop up at another point but I I think it's fascinating um in terms of the development but I didn't want it I don't want it to be too heavy in terms of theory (laughs) um but I think it is important to think about where where it's kind of all started from um but it's certainly I would say really heavy in that sort of evolutionary research thinking about brain development um you know, it's, it, it, it's biolog- biological and, you know, psychological, really. It's about security and, and survival. That's kind of what it comes down
0: to. Yeah. I, I Thank you. That's, I thought you did an amazing job. That was so clear. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> you nailed it. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so where should we go from here? So should we talk... Is it too early to talk about that... Um, concern that a lot of families have that they are creating babies that are too attached because that's something that i think i come i i come across a lot working in this space yes and i understand why and, and i think it's an unavoidable message as well that even if even if you and your partner are on the same page and you get it i think it's really hard to not be warned against that rod for your back and, and making them clingy and reliant.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I I do I get it. When you're when you're in the thick of it and you're that preferred parent, um, certainly if you're um a breastfeeding parent as well, because there's the extra uh kind of layer of especially very young babies of I'm their their sole nutrition, you know, um so there's the extra responsibility there um that when they can't leave your side or um you know they're not able to and I wish you could see I'm doing my my bunny fingers self-settle <laughs> yeah. um you know and and it's easy to think oh what am I doing you know they should be able to do this by now or um you know I, I'm they should just be able to be fine without this I've shown them you know long enough how to do it or all of those things and I think the big big misconception that there is is that parents are told the best way to have independent children or independent babies is to give them the opportunity to be independent as early as possible and it's just nonsense you know there's this whole thing about you know again it's another huge topic but about the way babies learn you know babies don't learn by accident how to do things or they don't learn by accident about the world you know they learn absolutely everything by their caregivers you know those that they um are in the company of all the time um so it just doesn't make sense at all does it to to suggest that babies can learn how to do things without being shown
0: yeah <laughs> um, by being left to it to figure it out
1: <laughs> yeah i mean i i know in in one of your previous episodes um you talk quite a lot about brain development. So unless we want to talk any further, I won't go massively into it, but it it that's essentially what it comes down to. You know, babies, um, even young children don't have the brain capacity, they don't have that fully developed area of the brain that would allow them to think about things logically enough to be able to figure it out, to problem solve, you know, that they don't have it, it doesn't exist. Um, so how can we unlock a skill or how can we expect them to learn something when the part of their brain that they need to do that just isn't there uh, yeah. <laughs> you know it, it it doesn't it just doesn't it doesn't make sense um yeah
0: and I know you and I could rant well, not rant <laughs> but like we could talk about sleep training all day and I would be very up for that but um yeah. I think one yeah. of the big Holes in this whole argument for me is is and this is what I realized myself as a mother was when I looked around at my peers and I realized that sleep training did appear to like you know help like the night like this n- there's no yeah. doubt about it my friends that were sleep training were getting more sleep than I was yes. Um, in that short term especially in that first year of life but then I realized that once like my friend's kids were turning two three four they weren't sleeping any differently to how the other kids were Um, yeah. and that sleep just became increasingly about very obvious or more obviously about emotions obviously I think it's always emotional but it's yeah. very different with verbal children because um we it's just more apparent um and I think yeah that idea therefore that a child has learned something during early infancy about independence and about um self-reliance and learning that skill by being left on their own or by just you know even if the parent is sort of just patting their back throughout the whole process, they haven't really learned it. And, and there is no evidence to suggest that that is any, if they have learned anything, that it has stayed. Because all the research shows that actually a year or two years or three years or seven years after the sleep training has happened, yes. the children don't sleep any differently. And I think that's when uh, it becomes very obvious that attachment matters when it comes to sleep. And
1: yeah. yeah. I mean, absolutely. You're right. And, you know, (laughs) we're having our own battles at the moment with, with, um, with my daughter's too. In terms of sleep, um, you know, we'd, we'd got to a good place um, and it's like all of a sudden two's hit and, you know, we're getting the bedtime battles. We're getting the, the kind of, they're they're almost tantrums, you know, Mm -hmm. in the middle of the night. Um, And it's, it's easy to fall into a power struggle, mm. you know, when it when it comes to sleep, and and you're right, I think when toddlers, especially, and they've got that really emergence kind of sense of self and that more sense of separateness, and they're kind of starting to learn more about themselves, about their wants, about what they do and don't like, about that need for control, and and all of that psychological development that's going on you know and we know that sleep is a massive separation you know there are lots of mini separations that happen during the day even you know if you're a working parent and your child goes to some kind of um, nursery or childminder you know that that's a good chunk of the day that they're away from you but the difference is is that they're still in company of other caregivers you know they're not alone and I think it's important to remember that aspect you know it's not that our toddlers don't necessarily want to go to sleep <laughs> or <laughs> don't like their sleep space. I think that's quite common, isn't it? Mm. Um, it's, it's the separation that, that they're mm. finding difficult and you're right. It does very much become um, about emotions and about the need for security and safety and knowing, you know, that actually I am here if you need me. Um, and I think that's where the whole independent thing comes in that if a child has been able to be wholly dependent I think there's an argument out there that children need babies sorry need to be co-dependent but actually I'd argue they need to be wholly dependent Mm. you know um because they are like you said at the beginning they're completely vulnerable they they need us for everything um and if they haven't been able to do that they're not going to you know learn what that feels like they're not going to be able to learn the trust the security their kind of um the way that they view adults the way that they view others um and all of that can have can have an impact certainly as as they're getting older and like you say finding their their voice um i'm finding that quite tricky as well so
0: and so this might be a good moment when it
1: to... comes to sleep um, yeah
0: i was going to ask about uh, attunement then and how hmm like could you explain a bit about what the concept or like what that word means?
1: Yeah. So attunement is basically all about how a person reacts to another person's emotional needs. Um, So they kind of do that in two ways. So one of them is sort of those nonverbal cues. So when you're thinking about um, your body language and your behavior, and then we're matching that up with the language. Um, So even things like tone of voice, um, pace, um, pitch of voice, all of these things, Um, and kind of when we're attuned to our children it kind of helps us to understand and judge the right amount of help that they need. Um, And also it kind of works both ways, so when we're attuned to our children and their needs, um, the communication and the connection that we've got is all enhanced. In terms of sort of specifics, I mean, attachment principles are very strongly rooted in attachment theory. Um, and I talked before about how learning doesn't happen by coincidence. Um, babies learn through those sort of mediated learning, So the shared and supported learning that they have with a caregiver. Um, and it, when we're looking back at, at foundations for attuned communication, so ultimately it's kind of like being as attentive as possible so you're looking towards your baby you know give them eye contact for goodness sake (laughs) (laughs) um you've got the open posture you're especially with older babies you're giving them the time and space so even with babies that aren't yet verbal you know I remember my mum saying to me you know when you're talking to her pause you know Mm. um because you can even have those those early conversations with young babies quite early on even the babbling you know they learn what the turn taking is like yeah um so you're waiting for the response um you're wondering out loud you're um you know it's about being playful it's about listening um and then when we're thinking about body language it's it's our facial expressions um you know are your facial expressions matching your language, you know, are your facial expressions warm um, and and open, or are they kind of narrow, are they cross, are they quite closed off? Um, So all of these things, and I mean, I have to say it's hard because these don't necessarily come naturally to everybody for whatever reason, you know, if we've got parents who have social communication difficulties, for example, you know, trying to meet these in attuned interactions are going might be quite tricky um or certainly when we're thinking about our own attachment styles as adults you know these can impact on how attuned mm-hmm. we are with our children so um there's a lot going on in terms of attunement it sounds really easy on paper doesn't it yeah, um,
0: just tune in
1: <laughs> yeah just tune in basically yeah absolutely um but but like i said it it t- it's a lot of it's a lot of work especially if if you find it more difficult and certainly when you're overwhelmed and you are exhausted um you know it it's not the easiest by any means um Mm. but that's kind of what we're thinking about when we're encouraging being attuned
0: um and it it starts very early on obviously doesn't it like you know the newborn attunement it it, and I think that's why we stress so much about um Like responsive caregiving you know understanding your baby's cues not just for hunger or sleepiness but also are they oh you know is your newborn a bit overstimulated do you need to break your gaze do they need to look away for a minute is that you know that's part of it as well we don't always have to we can give our babies that space if that's what they're asking for you know um having an open mind about what their communication is and 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 communicating back like you say it starts so young pre-verbal taking turns responding to each other get and and I think as you've touched on before it's also a lot of this is about getting it wrong as well as getting it right (laughs) like that is it no one is expected I think I think there is this idea that to be like this perfect parent Mm -hmm. you have to know your baby's cues and I think that's leads to a lot of shame yes. for new parents
1: yeah absolutely and I mean babies are they're like little enigmas aren't they they're so tricky um and you know we talk a lot don't we about um how it can be more beneficial to follow babies' cues in terms of um preparing them to, to go for a nap or thinking about bedtime rather than kind of set times but you're right they can be I mean, certainly my daughter's sleep cues are non-existent and they always have been.
0: <laughs> yes, I um, do. I mean, yeah. in the early days, especially, well, yeah, some babies are really subtle or sometimes, yeah, like yeah. sometimes they're really similar to being bored or being overstimulated <laughs> or being hungry or just something's in their eye, you know, it's just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we we're like, I think getting I think getting it wrong is mm-hmm. such an important part of the process. Like you were saying, we don't have to get, being responsive and being attuned to our children's needs is not getting it right 100% of the time effortlessly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean it, it it can't be it's impossible. We you know we can't we can't achieve the impossible. Um and certainly you know when I think about my daughter I mean even now a sleep keeper not not there. But when she was very <laughs> little as well you know I'd be I'd try not to watch the clock and I'd, I'd kind of go by her but she would just be go 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 until literally she would crash mm-hmm. um, and I'd find that really really tricky but like you say it's about learning your child you know you're learning about each other aren't you it's very much it's like a new relationship you're not yeah. your baby isn't born I mean your baby is born knowing you you know in terms of on, on that sort of level but it's about figuring each other out, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and learning, you know, what what you like. I said it's about having that curiosity and and, and the wondering about what's going on for your baby. Um, and often we we probably have a bit of a checklist, don't we? And think well, so. I don't think you're hungry. <laughs> I'm <I've> definitely <laughs> yeah. sure not these. So I'm wondering what's going on. Um, and that can be quite helpful actually to just kind of take more of that curious um approach um and certainly when your your child doesn't put the brakes on um like mine does it can it can be difficult but um you you do adapt and you do learn like you say over time um and and you're right there's absolutely no way that we can get it right all the time um it's certainly okay to be good enough um
0: it's more than good enough you know yeah the, the best way to be is good enough perfect oh, like you said before, perfect could be detrimental <laughs> that's yeah. what I, that's what I tell myself anyway <laughs>
1: yeah absolutely I mean in terms of the whole good enough parenting you know if we think about what a good enough mother or, or father or, or caregiver looks like it's who who kind of learns best how to look after a baby so it's not taking all the advice from the health professionals it's not going to Dr Google it's not reading all the parenting books as such but it's actually from having a baby yourself you know and learning about your baby and kind of acting on what feels natural which again a lot of what we're talking about is very much easier said than done Yeah. Um, but every single parent I speak to one of the hardest things that they find is is tuning out what everybody else says and what everybody else thinks
0: yeah Um, it's difficult though isn't it because we are a social species and I do also think mm -hmm. that parenting is a group activity that we Mm -hmm. have always done with support of a community as well so I think that that's where there's this conflict because we all want to lean on our village and have support around us and know that we're not like messing our kids up too much (laughs) but at the same time we very much need to tune out the noise listen to our gut and like learn about who we are as parents who our children are and attune. so I do think there can be a bit of a conflict sometimes and that's where I think the bad advice which is based around these ideas around forced independence and Mm -hmm. forced separation and um, experts knowing better than you do I think that's where the water's muddy between getting support from people that that can help you and can empower you to getting support from people that can mm-hmm. like dim your light and make you feel like you don't know what you're doing. That's my, that's my Absolutely. TED talk. <laughs> <I> mean...
1: <laughs> I'm done. We can, we can stop. Though. <laughs> um, but, but, but you're so right, you know, and parental self-efficacy and which essentially is just your, your own belief in your ability to parent well you know, and and the confidence that you have in yourself, like you say, can be blurred, can be um marked by so many different things. I mean, we we aren't meant to do this alone. You're right, but sometimes I feel like some parents are having even more of a harder time if they've got support, because they're, you know, they're whoever supporting them is perhaps not aligning with with their yeah. own values or isn't listening. You know, there's they can you can have physical support can't you so someone to look after your baby while you while you catch up on whatever you need to do but is that the same support as what we actually need which is the emotional support and we can think about you know as adults we need that same attunement that that our children need mm. you know we need all of those things from another adult we need them to be open and warm and to feel like we're really being listened to you know those those things aren't reserved just for just for children yeah um so you're right i think when we do have support it's it's great but it has to be the right kind of support you know yeah. and, and that's really hard really hard we can we can i've i've always said this about about mental health in general is you know we encourage very much people to speak out but actually are we encouraging and and making sure that we know how to listen you know it's 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 massive and it can make a huge difference in how well supported you feel um but certainly you know there's a lot of outside influences that are very much difficult to ignore even more so like you say if you haven't got sort of that confidence in your in yourself and and your parenting
0: um makes it even more hard um So, what would you say to someone who's, like best friend has a six-month-old who's sleeping through the night, does all their naps in their cot, does two-hour lunch naps, yeah. um, like, <laughs> and your baby is like can't get out of your bed, <laughs> yeah, um, attached to twenty-four-seven, and someone and your best mate has kindly, lovingly said. I think maybe your baby's too attached to you and maybe you've made a bit of a problem for yourself here by Mm -hmm. always like feeding and holding and carrying them and letting them into your bed in the first place.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I would say it's very important to have our own boundaries in place to protect ourselves. Um, You know, it doesn't mean you have to cut off the friendship. What I'm saying is I think putting a boundary in place to say you know, actually, this is quite a sensitive issue for me. Um, it's not really something that I that I want to talk about. Um, you know, if they are good friends, you're gonna have a million and one other things to talk about other than yeah. how your baby's sleeping. And I think just putting some um, kind of caveats around that and saying, you know, I'm really pleased that your your baby's sleeping well and that you're doing okay you know but actually it's it's really difficult for me at the moment and um it's it's not something i really want to talk about i'm not in the right place to talk about it and that's completely okay and i think if they are good friends they should be able to respect that um does that you know yeah i,
0: th-
1: I think that's important although again if you <laughs> when you've got friends that have got babies and all you talk about <laughs> is babies yeah it's um hard but you know that there are ways to move that that
0: that topic on you know you can talk about other things that your baby might be doing or it's just difficult isn't it that that idea you know and then you know maybe your partner comes home and they say oh well like you know Jane's baby does this why doesn't ours and their baby do-? and you know and and are oh, you so basically i suppose what i'm saying is you know i think we need to get rid of this idea that a baby can be too attached right yes. Yes. that's like nonsense
1: yeah it, it it it's not um it's not a thing I think when a baby is displaying a real difficulty with leaving a caregiver um over an extended time I think sometimes that can be indicative of you know um there might be some some stress at home there might be you know we I think what we forget to do is look at the external factors that are going on in a baby's life um which can lead to behavior that some people think is being too attached you mm-hmm. know or clingy or things like that you know babies um babies are clingy you know it's it's not a bad <laughs> thing um you know it's not a bad thing to be clingy all they're doing is for whatever reason they need that extra support that extra reassurance to kind of then go off and explore it doesn't mean that they're too attached you know that's if anything being very securely attached is a really positive thing and I think again it's about that curiosity isn't it as to you know if my baby finds it really difficult to leave me compared to every baby I see perhaps it's something to do with their temperament you know perhaps there's something going on for them developmentally at the moment perhaps um you know they're worried about something it's not you know, because they, they they can't leave you because you know um, because of this idea that they're that they're too attached and that they yeah. can't ever do anything without you. Um, and you're I... right. Sorry, go on. No, no, you carry on. Sorry. I was I was just going to say I think often parents are worried. Then aren't they that actually being responsive and following babies cues is going to lead to more difficult beha- um, behaviours, perhaps, or um, that their baby's going to find it more difficult to kind of mm. um, separate from them. And it's it's just not the case, is it? We talk a lot about temperament, don't we? Um, mm. And how much this plays a part. I mean, attachment is just, it's so complex. It's just not as straightforward as, you know... Um, you've you've uh, always responded to your baby so therefore they're never going to leave you that's the yeah. complete opposite of what attachment yeah. theory suggests and what like you say decades of research has shown
0: yeah and i i was just going to add in just anecdotally i just know so many of my friends who've had one baby who was super easygoing yeah. you know and the next was really sensitive and yeah. the other way around you know and be people that have a sensitive first baby can blame themselves or other people will blame them because yeah. when you're a new parent you are vulnerable it's a new job a massive new role A yeah. massive new relationship of course you're going to feel yeah vulnerable to outside opinions and things yeah uh and it it just shows you know babies are different they're people they're unique and they're all going at this own pace and we are so We do generally understand that a baby will walk at some point between 10 and 18 months, but yet we expect them to hit these milestones, particularly around sleep and feeding, at at very, very set ideas. And it leads to so much stress for parents.
1: It really does. And also going back to just talking, just going back to what you were saying about how some um parents find that they have you know a really easygoing child and then they have a really sensitive child for example that feels like a lot more hard work and I think also it's important to remember that children's personalities and um the way that they present at different ages is really different as well I know that reflecting on um with my own daughter who has always been you know really sociable really outgoing um seems to be quite you know relaxed and confident and like I said it's it's recently she's just hit this sort of real toddlerhood and she's very much now very you know a bit more oh mum I'm you know I'm not sure and I can see it in her behavior Mm -hmm. you know and at the moment she does need a bit more extra reassurance um you know and I think that's important to take into account as well is that that's always changing you know based on their everyday experiences as well. Um, So that's not to say that her attachment is changing, but certainly how much support she needs from me is going to change. You know, you could have a baby that you find really, really difficult to ever put down and always wants to be close to you, you know, and then all of a sudden they're just the most outgoing child in the world. Um, So there's all of that as well. And I think there's just no prescription is there there's no formula there's no um exact calculation or strategy to um how you know for for children you know it's we're we're human we all of us are going to change every day um
0: and that could we could we talk a bit then about um that kind of yeah that fluidity of attachment or how attachment evolves because it's about a uh, you know, patterns of behavior and inner working model. Well, let's go, let's go on to that inner working model. Is that, am I in the right direction, Charlotte? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. So I think in, in terms of the internal working model, which I find so interesting, um, if we go back to kind of what the process of building the secure attachment looks like, say for example, that, I mean, this is very sort of <laughs> a roundabout way, Um but when a baby is in distress, so that they're crying or they're kind of visibly upset and what happens is their, their caregiver recognises that the baby is, is stressed. Um, they kind of decipher what the need might be and they, they comfort them and they meet the need. So it could be that they're hungry and then they feed them. It could be that they're cold, so they need an extra blanket, you know, um, all of that meet, meeting those those needs. And then what happens is that distress is then reduced. And the more that that happens, so the more baby's needs are reliably met, the baby learns that an adult is trustworthy. Um, and then they gradually are able to learn to kind of wait for things. So this is what we're talking about in terms of self-regulation um, and self-soothing. Um, you know, they need to learn that an adult is, is trustworthy and will, and will meet their needs first before they learn even how to think about meeting their own needs so this process is repeated for different needs kind of hundreds of times each day if you think about it you know we're thinking about food we're thinking about warmth we're thinking about do they need a nappy change do they need a sleep do they need a cuddle are they bored um you know it's it's constant um and it's important to remember that none of us are born with the capacity to regulate our emotions. So no matter what people tell you, uh, babies aren't born with this skill you have to unlock that That all of a sudden means they're going to be able to, to suit themselves. So babies' emotions have to be regulated by an adult. And again, where babies' physical needs are met and where babies' emotional needs are met, they learn that adults can reliably meet their needs, so adults are trustworthy. People are safe. I can rely on others, um, and I know I know self soothing is quite a hot topic in in our sleep world, isn't it? Mm. Um, but when we're thinking about self regulation, it's the ability to cope with and manage uncomfortable feelings. So, when an infant is relying heavily, or you know, wholly on a parent to regulate its feelings, um, we're talking about then that 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 trust develops. So what they what parents are doing is they're acting as that kind of external co-regulator. Um, you know, they're teaching babies what it feels like to be calm from the outside in, really. Um, and when this attachment is secure, when babies know parents are going to reliably meet their needs um, and provide the comfort that they need, and that kind of dyadic relationship is working well, infants develop something called the internal working model. So this is essentially where their worthiness, if you like, is constructed from that close relationship with their caregiver. And this is what I've been trying to get at is that they babies learn everything from us. Um, and when they have got that positive and secure relationships, and their needs are always met. What infants do is they begin to see themselves as lovable, you know, as as worthy, as um, you know that their needs are important, that they're important. Mm. And then what they do is they then extend that belief outwards to adults, and they believe that other people are loving and trustworthy, and essentially that the world is safe. You know, the world is a safe place to explore, and my caregiver adults will help me and they will keep me safe so we know that you know the, the outcomes of of um this kind of responsive relationship and this internal working model is it does help them to develop that positive sense of self and it does kind of have this blueprint for um you know uh better quality of relationships, you know, lasting relationships, positive and, um, reciprocal relationships. Um, and it's just so interesting to me that this, you know, starts so early on, you know, it's not, it's not to say that, you know, these tiny babies are in their heads thinking, Oh, um, mums, mums come to feed me and mum does this. That means, you know, I'm deserving. It's certainly not on that kind of conscious level. Um, but it's just a really, really interesting area of psychology I find, and we can very much trace that back to how how well were our needs met when when we were very little and very vulnerable. Um,
0: well, I am. Um, one thing I think uh, in Philippa Perry's book, um, the book you wish your parents had read. Yes, which I think probably gets mentioned in every episode of this podcast. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you're a fan, but she I think the way she describes internal working models, or at least what I think she is describing as uh, internal working models, mm-hmm. is that, you know, imagine if you landed in a foreign country, you know, mm-hmm. on a plane crash and you're the only survivor and you get off and you have no idea where you are mm-hmm. and you've never encountered this type of landscape or culture before and one person comes along to rescue you that you know and it's like that's your guide for that culture and if they are kind and smiling and helping you to food and helping you figure out you know that will shape your understanding of that new culture you found yourself yeah. in it will make you think okay these are trustworthy people or nope these are not these are dodgy people i need to keep one eye on them and yeah. i think that's quite a nice um and like way of thinking about it i hope i've got that yeah. right <laughs>
1: No, yeah yeah absolutely like i said there's there's no kind of um one sort of definition or, or one idea of it but i think you're right the crux of it is all about how we relate to others so it's how our own understanding of ourselves then extends to our, our feelings about other people and like you say and then and then the world um so pretty pretty powerful stuff and i mean i i i really just want to highlight as well because it very much sounds like I'm talking about this with sort of rose tinted glasses, you know? (laughs) Um, and it's, it's very sort of what, what we know as, as the, with the research and and the information, but, you know, it's really important to acknowledge that early relationships with, with our caregivers can be interrupted for so many different reasons. Mm. Um, and I think the, the word, the phrases, mum shaming and and mum guilt come up a lot. Um, and, in no way are we kind of inferring blame or guilt for the way that babies are turning out or um mm. the the choices that parents are making because quite often it's not an active choice, you know, mm. it's it's something that we're having to do as a result of our circumstances. You know, we all care about our children, we're all doing the best that we can, but you know, and there are things that are that do get in the way of secure attachments, mm. but you know your everyday parenting and occasionally getting things wrong um or needing to put your baby down in a safe place and walk away for five minutes because you are dysregulated yourself is is not going to damage your attachment you know and I think that that's what I hope people you know will will start Mm. to to understand is you know we we are all doing our best and actually there's no I, I read um i've been reading uh, again the the power of showing up so dan siegel and, and tina Pe- payne bryson and I'm, I'm to be fair i'm just a dan siegel super fan yeah. day. i'll read anything <laughs> of his. um and he talks about you know how our our history is not our destiny you know and how um secure attachments can be learned in our very infancy but also that they can be earned so the idea that you know even if we had a disrupted or, or insecure attachment as a child, we can find secure attachments in others as, as we get older. So, you know, and we can learn more about ourselves and get support and, and do the work. And we can very much parent our children in the way that we wish we had been parented. You know, it's not it's not set in stone. Yes. Um, that if you had difficulties of attachment with your own caregivers, that it's gonna be, you know, the same for your child. Having said that, it's it's a it's uh no mean feat to be a generational um cycle breaker. Um that is
0: such a good point though, Charlotte. I think that is really important to, to say because I think there can be an assumption around attachment that it is made or broke, like it is this um, yeah. thing made of stone that you have or you lose and that if you do something yeah. to damage it. Um, and like you say, there are so many circumstances in which that could happen because human beings, like, you know, we do, we, bec- we have to separate, you know, people... Yes beyond our control sometimes or sometimes we do things that you know yeah there's lots of reasons why why we could uh make these mistakes or not make them yeah and it's not a broken it's not a yeah it's not a stone thing that it's it's fluid it's evolving it's moving I think that's so important
1: yeah i mean i i will i'll use an example or a few examples so in in the work that i do in my in my psychology role a lot of the children that i'm working with you can really trace back and and see their behavior in terms of more not necessarily attachment difficulties but relationship difficulties um and what we in in my work, what i really try and and kind of drive home to the, to the teachers is that, you know, they're also role models. You know, some of these children sadly may not have the best role models at home, um, and may not have had, you know, those those secure relationships, but our our brain is moldable. You know, we've got neuroplasticity, it's always changing, we can always change what we call sort of the neural pathways, you know, our our learned behaviour, our our um the way that we think and the way that we believe based on our experiences. And I'm always saying this to to um, teachers, you know, don't write these children off. It's hard work, but actually, if you can build, you, if you can be that secure adult, that secure person for this child, and build this relationship with them, you'll see a different child. You know, it's. I mean, it, that's a whole other topic. Is yeah. is um trying to get schools to see things from a, a relational a relational point of view? Yeah. Um. But if you've got the relationships there, if you can focus on those relationships and helping these children feel safe in school, um, you know, if we've got children that are struggling with their attachments and struggling, like we say, with that internal working model and their belief is that adults can't be trusted, that adults are scary, that adults are unpredictable, it's no wonder that they're going to struggle in an environment where, you know, adults are telling them what to do and they're meant to rely on adults. Um mm-hmm. But, you know, the the work can be done, things can be changed. Um, it's hard work, or, you know, it doesn't happen overnight, but it's worth it. And I think it's, it's worth the investment um, for these children. That's all they need. They need somebody to um, see them for them, see them for their strengths, see them for what they can do, you know. And I think um, we haven't talked about Circle of Security, have we? no. Um, but that's that's a really good one to come back to. So this is all about um, thinking about a child's needs, kind of on on a on a continuum on on a circle. Um, and what you're doing is you're being the the, the secure. <laughs> you can't see what I'm doing. I'm like doing it with my hands. <laughs> um, you're being the, the secure base for a child to be able to confidently. Um, leave to explore knowing that you're there if they need you so they go out onto the circle um, to explore and then they come back on the circle um, and come back to you and then they need you to be those hands that they come back to to be that safe haven to protect them to comfort in them you know to um delight in them and to help them with those those difficult feelings that they might have um and that that's kind of also what it comes back to certainly with when we're thinking about um toddlers and and older children as well um and i think that's quite a nice summary for me of what i see as a secure attachment um is you know you as an adult you're you're that base you're the scaffolding um and if you've taught a child and they've learned from you that the world is a safe place to be um, then they're going to go out reliably knowing that they can always come back to you and that they're going to receive the support that they need. Um, and that, again, makes it sound very simple, but Mm. I appreciate that, you know, this is heavy stuff and it's complex. Humans are complex, um, emotions complex, but for me, like I said, it's coming back to that ruptures happen, you know, um, but it's, it's the repair that's the most important. So we can get things wrong. We do get things wrong. But actually, that's, that's a learning um, lesson for children as well. It's a chance to repair. It's a chance for them to see how to deal with things when they go wrong. Um, yeah. If they never know... Sorry, go on.
0: No, because they're not going to grow up to be perfect people either.
1: No, and that's a hard... Um, a hard thing to be is to you know to be striving for perfection all the time um and also if if we're trying to be these perfect parents and trying to protect our children from all stress and all harm and and never get any getting anything wrong they never actually learn um how to self-soothe from us they never know what it feels like to go from um a manageable stressful uh, experience to then be supported to calm you know, because they're never getting to that point. Does so that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, so actually they're they're at a disadvantage when it comes to stress later in life because they're not going to know how to deal with it. Um, so that's there's kind of two ends of the continuum, isn't there? Where we're expecting children, babies, to cope with their own stress independently, because there are people out there that think it's good for them. <laughs> um, and then you've got at the other end parents that um you know where children never learn what any stress feels like at all um Mm. and then don't know how to how to deal with it so if you're somewhere in the middle and you're doing that good enough
0: then you know you're definitely doing an amazing job yeah the hardest I think what so many parents think when they when they think about attachment is oh god is my child secure and I think it is a difficult thing to to, to measure and to know but ultimately if you're trying if you're showing up yes. if you're doing your best give, give yourself a break do you know what I mean? like just yeah. give and yourself I, some grace it's fine yeah. and
1: and I think if, if it's any sort of consolation or any comfort I think if we're thinking about attachment styles so obviously we've talked about secure attachment and then we've got um insecure avoidant and um, insecure, ambivalent, and then we've also got disorganized. And I won't go into too much detail because what I really don't want to happen is for parents to be listening to me and thinking, oh God, that's my child, (laughs) what have I done? Um, But what I will say is um, disorganized is is very much at the extreme end where um, a caregiver is scary to uh, an infant Mm -hmm. um, and, they are kind of um terrified and what they do is they just learn never to seek them out um because it's too scary for them
0: yeah um
1: and again that's a real extreme end um and with the ambivalent and the um and the avoidant there's research to suggest that even if you've got these insecure attachment styles you can go on to kind of um have healthy relationships because what you do is you kind of find organized patterns to um, to navigate you kind of compensate in a way Mm. um so even if you don't have a a really secure attachment or you're um, worried that your child doesn't have a massively secure attachment you know they can still form relationships they are still going (laughs) to function you know it's only like you say at that real extreme end that they then find relationships really difficult so um if that's any consolation you know even if parents are concerned chances are unless you're only at that extreme end of their their early life experiences um you you are getting it right you you are doing enough um yeah I hope that makes sense
0: it does I'm I'm aware of the time as well um sorry I should let you get on but um (laughs) it's so interesting I love it um yeah uh is there anything else you wanted to add to this conversation
1: I just wanted I know um that we can't not really quickly touch on on sleep training and I know Mm. that a lot of parents who have sleep trained um are then worried with with all that we talk about that they think they've ruined the attachment with their with their child um and the, the simple answer to that is no, <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, unless there are rather big risk factors going on, um, you know, what you're doing is the repair work and that's mm. the most important. What I will say is I think it's a really bold claim for the sleep training indes- industry to say that attachment will never be affected by sleep training because it's such a blanket statement. And I think it's really ignorant to the fact that, every family circumstances are different we don't necessarily know what's what's happening we don't know what the child's temperament is like Mm -hmm. um we don't know what else is going on so i don't think it's right for them to be able you know to make those claims because we, we just don't know um but the long and short of it is probably not um and especially if you're worried about it as well we always say this don't we that if you're worried that you're not doing enough or that you're not getting it right you are
0: yeah (laughs) no because
1: you you care enough to 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 think about it and to question and reflect so um yeah I mean we could go on and on but
0: yeah I think that is a claim that the sleep training industry makes against sort of um the work that you and I, people like us do, which is mm-hmm. that we're trying to scare parents into saying, oh, well, if you sleep train, you're going to make your children insecure and ruin attachment. And yes. and we're not saying that. We're, yeah. we're saying, but I think what you've really clearly explained is how the self-soothing idea is mm. a fallacy. Yes. And actually the whole basis on which they are selling this approach mm. is based on like nonsense and really outdated totally debunked like concepts you know so from another time and another world that don't apply to what we know today about attachment which is that we want to create a pattern of attunement and Mm -hmm. trying and showing up and getting it wrong and there is space for getting it wrong and so we're not here to demonize all sleep training families i'm i tried it like i'm not yeah. you know um it's not about that it's not this thing that it's not uh, yeah attachment is not a porcelain you know vase but um we we just have to be mindful of it as well and 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 n- know what you know apply what we know which is that um actually we can just keep on following our instincts mm-hmm. meeting our kids where they are and and you know and not worrying about the the other side that they that some people are saying which is that if you if you're molly coddling and you're you know you're creating a, a a wimpy needy insecure kid by by soothing them that's that's just as scaremongering as saying well your kid's going to have poor attachment if you sleep train yeah
1: Absolutely, and I think it's it's part of a wider um, issue, isn't it, as to how society views infants and um, mothers and infants' emotion, emotional needs um, and how a lot of us, and it seems like society, it's almost an uncomfortable thing to acknowledge um, and to work on, you know. It's easier, isn't it, to just kind of dismiss things um and kind of look at behavior just from a behaviorism perspective um yeah but what matters is is that we're 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 curious um like you say we're we're just we're doing our best um and trying as much as we can to to trust our gut you know if something feels wrong it probably is um you know and I think Whatever we can do to, to support that parental self-efficacy and to just, you know, give give that that confidence back in, in parents own decisions and, um, you know, and, and how they feel about about how they're doing as well is is really powerful if we can do that.
0: So Whenever I listen back to these interviews for the editing process, I try and hear them not as a sleep consultant or a content creator, but as a as a mum. And I try and think, what would I, wh- well, what am I taking away from this as a parent listening to it? Because I get so much out of these interviews and conversations that I get to have, um, and I apply so much of this stuff to my own life, and I've learned so much. So. um I'm very grateful that I get to speak to such clever people all the time definitely I think what I have carried around with me this week since my chat with Charlotte was that um, her message about not being perfect is so lovely to hear isn't it you know and I have to say I say this to my clients a lot as well but um, I think we can just be incredibly hard on ourselves as parents and I've Talked before on this podcast about how I am a recovering perfectionist in so many ways. And obviously, nothing means more to us than the well being of our children. You know, we just want the best for them. And we are these imperfect beings who are raising them. And, you know, something that I talked a lot to my therapist about last year was about how having a child sort of shines a light on your own attachment. Style and your attachment um needs and behaviors, and uh I know that I think I was kind of oblivious to a lot of stuff before I became a mother, and then when uh I'm there parenting myself, there is that element of reparenting that's happening as well, and that is it's difficult and it's messy and it's complex, and we're all busy and it's hard this is hard work you know Charlotte says being a generational cycle breaker or doing that work on yourself is hard it's hard work but our children really don't need perfect parents they really don't Um, and the attachment system does not depend on perfect attunement it just doesn't it's really normal if you don't understand your baby's cues right now. <laughs> it's really normal if you get it wrong. We have all had that afternoon or where, or night or whenever it is where you are saying I have fed you, I've changed you, I've rocked you, I've taken you outside, I've done everything I can think of and you're still upset or you know you're not sleeping or whatever it is and we're saying like why that is just a universally it's a universal parenting experience and it's frustrating as hell Um, and I think sometimes when we think about attachment and creating securely attached children we can be so hard on ourselves because we're thinking, God, if I'm getting this wrong, if I can't understand what their needs are, if I haven't figured out their routine, if sleep's going badly or feeding's hard work or whatever thing that we're sort of beating ourselves up over that day, um, you know, we just don't, we don't need to worry so much because I do think that just by the trying and the showing up and forgiving ourselves, giving it another go (laughs) and seeing what else works, that is the process that's how it works you know we don't have to be perfect we do learn a lot when we get things wrong and our children are hardwired to attach to us so i think as long as we keep trying to be responsive and trying to understand them and trying to attune then we will get there and you know um i was thinking again about the questions that came up on the instagram story i did before this episode came out and um one of the best ones that I've had a million times to myself is, is how do we know if our children are securely attached? And I think this is just like the million dollar question, isn't it? And I would really love to be able to answer it in a pithy sound bite. But I think the truth is we don't know, you know. Um, but one thing for sure is that if your baby is cuddly, needs a lot of closeness, doesn't want to sleep alone you know is behaving lots of sort of attachment behaviors that is not in itself a sign that they are insecurely attached equally if they're upset when you separate that is not a sign that they are insecurely attached Um, I think that can lead to a lot of confusion around attachment though equally if you have a child who is more easygoing in their temperament so that they are happy to play for a few minutes or longer on their own, if they are happy to sleep in a cot, if they're um, not a cuddly, clingy baby, that's also okay as well. That in itself isn't necessarily a sign that you have created an insecurely attached child either. Um, assessing attachment is um, is a complex thing as well. So the best um, tool that we have today is what's called the the strange situation experiment and I'll link in the show notes to an ex- an article that kind of explains what that entails but it was created by Mary Ainsworth who was another um pioneer in the world of attachment theory and she created the strange situation um experiment in in the 1970s to observe attachment in children um over a certain age so um but you know I I I hope that what this episode does though is puts your mind at rest if you are worried about your child's attachment um, and help you kind of understand what it is why we attach what's normal but let me know you know get in touch Um, tell me what you're feeling from the things that we talked about today have you sleep trained did you worry about the attachment afterwards did you um or have you gone back to work recently and you're worried about your child's uh, attachment relationship because certainly you know it's these things often do have an impact on sleep and um that in itself can be really healthy and normal as well you know it's very separation anxiety is very very normal i did an episode all about separation anxiety in the first series if you want to go back to listen to that hopefully that also might reassure you um a little bit more about separation and attachment um and yeah and ever just thank you so much to everyone who has left a review for the series and liked and subscribed and shared it with their friends i'm i'm blown away we're having thousands and thousands of downloads a month right now which is amazing So I just want to say thank you for listening and for getting in touch to share your feedback. It means so much. Until next week, goodbye.